Good morning. So glad you are here. Welcome uh, to our community. Roger. Good to see you, dude. Um, and anyone else whose name I know, we could spend the next few moments. No, uh, my name is Mike, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Got a couple of things for you. First of all, if you are new to our community, you need to know a couple of things. Number one, there's a connect card somewhere around you, either in the seat back in front of you, on your seat. That is a way, fill that out if you would, and, and give that to one of our ushers. Or as you leave, there's a little uh, place called Guest Central out there. You can turn those in, and we'd love to get in contact with you. Secondly, this is our most crowded service, and so we've got uh, some room at our 8.30 and 11.30 services if you're able to, to make those work. And then uh, tomorrow, tomorrow night, we're uh, doing something. We, we believe that one of the roles of the church is to equip people for the work of ministry. And so we believe that however many followers of Jesus we have here, that's how many missionaries and ministers we have. And we're doing a, a training tomorrow that, um, that's about, we're calling it Sent, and it's about what it means to live a sent kind of life. Last week we looked at Jesus sending the 70, and there's some really practical good instruction for non-evangelism people that we want to uh, expose you to. And so that's tomorrow night, 6.30 to 8.30, over in the Chapel Fireside Room. Uh, you also have an app on your phone now that is the EV Free app. You can give, you can sign up, you can get news. It's glorious. There are no games for you to play during the teaching, so you have to play your words with friends later. Now, um, we want to take a moment, and uh, we want to pray this morning for the persecuted church uh, around the world. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen very graphic reminders that following Jesus faithfully uh, carries with it a great cost. And those reminders not only indict the American church in terms of the stuff we argue and get upset about, but they also call us to pray, uh, to deep prayer, because we believe that ISIS and other terrorist organizations their symptoms and not roots. And only Jesus of Nazareth takes care of the root of evil in the world. And so um, we just want to take a moment, and I want to invite you to be quiet and to pray, and then I'll close us and we'll get into the text together. So if you close your eyes, we just want to have a, a few moments of quiet and to pray for our brothers and sisters in Nigeria, in Iraq, and other places of great persecution. And so, Holy Father, we join you in grieving this morning as people who live uh, in freedom to call upon your name and to worship. Um, it's hard for us to understand that this is the exception rather than the rule for your people throughout the ages. And so, Father, we um, take a moment and we call upon your mighty name to do what only you can do. We, we pray, of course, for wisdom for our political leaders. We pray for safety for our brothers and sisters across the world. God, we pray that your church would rise up um, to demonstrate love at great cost. 
and fidelity to your great name. And Father, we pray for ISIS. Lord, in the name of Jesus, we pray that you would reveal yourself to them in dreams and in visions and that you would call them to repentance and to laying down their arms. And Father, that's only something you could get credit for. And so in the name of Jesus, Father, we ask that your spirit would break their power and you would break the power of the enemy who sits behind them. And Father, we mourn, we lament a world where this still happens. We pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus, to restore the world to the way you intended. But in these in-between times, Father, give us courage. Give us boldness. As our world, as our culture in America becomes increasingly hostile, Lord, may we uh, be found worthy to have your name on our lips. Father, we pray for the families of those who were beheaded, the churches involved in the name of Jesus. Father, would you strengthen them and visit them this morning? And Father, that they might um, have a perspective only you can give. And so we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And we ask you, Lord, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Grab a Bible, if you would. We're going to Luke chapter 10. We, uh, we've looked at this passage, oh man, two and a half years ago. And I expect that you all remember how amazing that teaching was. But even though you will all have it readily available, I'm going to repeat it since we're here and it's in Luke chapter 10. What we want to do, ladies and gentlemen, this is my wife. How am I supposed to focus when she is walking... <laughs> How am I supposed to focus? I have no idea. I have no idea. How am I supposed to focus? Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Honey bear. You can open your app. You can open a Bible. On one occasion, an expert in the law. Now, experts in the law were called Torah scholars. These were people who not only memorized the 613 commandments of the Old Testament, but they knew the fine print. These are the people who endlessly debated and studied and sought to understood and interpret the commands of Moses. On one occasion, someone like that stood up to test Jesus. Now, test here means we're opposed to him and we're trying to trap him. And this happens all the time to our Jesus. Teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, eternal life in the Jewish consciousness isn't life in heaven with clouds and harps. It's life in the age to come where the Messiah rules, where people have resurrected bodies. And, and, and this is one of the very common questions uh, in first century Israel. It'd be like if you went up to someone today and said, hey, what do you think about predestination? Their yes or no would kind of tell you what camp they fell in, Right? Or or do you believe you can lose your salvation? Their yes or no would tell you something about their theology. Well, this was one of those kind of questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus, he never answers directly. He answers with a question. He says, verse 26, What is written in the law, capital L, the first five books of Moses? How do you read it? Now, this, we've got about 15 minutes of pain. So make sense of what's coming, all right? Thus begins. 15 minutes. How do you read it is a very Jewish way of referencing another big debate in the first century. Namely, how do you rank the commandments? 
There were 613 commandments, and often they would come into conflict, conflict, conflict with each other. So there was a command to do no work on the Sabbath. But what if uh, your son or daughter broke their leg and had to be carried? Which command to provide help to someone in need or to not work on the Sabbath, which command do you follow when the two conflict? So there were various schools of thought about how you ranked the commandments. Two very famous schools of thought in Jesus' day, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. They both agreed that the number one commandment came from Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But they disagreed about number two. Hillel believed love your neighbor as yourself was number two, and Shammai believed be holy as I am holy, says the Lord, was number two. I know this is unbelievably fascinating, but Jesus, he was Jewish. And he's talking to Jewish people, and they have their own debates, just like the American church has its own debates. And so to understand what Jesus is doing here, you have to understand a bit of that background. So, what must they do to obtain eternal life? Well, you're the Torah scholar. How do you rank them? Torah scholar says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, I'm with Hillel. Now, this is the same answer Jesus gives, by the way, other places. So Jesus responds, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, if your attempt was to test Jesus, have you succeeded? Have you shown Jesus to be some sort of heretic or false prophet? No! Here's the the thing so far. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you're a Torah scholar. How do you rank him? Well, I'm with Hillel. Love your neighbor as yourself as number two. Great. You've answered correctly. Have you trapped Jesus? You have not. So, the man asks a follow-up question, and this references another big debate in the first century. He says, verse 29, the man wanted to justify himself or make him look in the right. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? If the command is to love your neighbor, one of the Jewish debates was who exactly does that command apply to? Which, interestingly enough, is a very subtle way of asking, who don't I have to love? Right? Because who do I have to love? How far does neighbor go? Is also asking, well, who don't I have to love? Now, to understand one of the common, not the only, but one of the common Jewish responses to who is my neighbor, hold your finger here. Let's go to the book of Leviticus. We're in Luke and Leviticus today. This message is sponsored by the letter L. And so Leviticus, go to Leviticus 19. This was one of the understandings of neighbor. Leviticus 19, and we'll start in verse 16. Leviticus 19, verse 16. Notice, do not go about spreading slander among who? Your people. Do not do anything that endangers your who? Neighbor's life. So neighbor and your people fit together. Do not rebuke a who? Fellow Israelite. Oh, excuse me. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. But then it says, rebuke your who? Neighbor frankly. Verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone who? Among your people. But 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, do you see three times your people and neighbor are really close together? Would you agree? So, who naturally, for some, what was the answer? Who's my neighbor? Fellow Jews, right? And even that was debated. How Were Samaritans Jews? I mean, did you have to be clean to be a neighbor? I mean, all of these debates. So that was the standard response. Who's my neighbor? Fellow Israelites. Jump back to Luke. Jesus, in reply, offers the following greatly misunderstood teaching. In reply, Jesus said, verse 30, A man, he doesn't specify race, ethnicity, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Now let me show you a picture of this road. Okay, it's 17 miles long. That's the Jericho road. That's at least one section of it. There were places where it's incredibly narrow. Sections of it in the first century were called the way of blood because uh, brigands and robbers would just lay in wait for people Uh, Jerusalem was up high uh, on a plateau. Jericho was 800 feet under sea level. So you would literally go up to Jerusalem and down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Priests and Levites, a lot of the temple folk, would have summer homes in Jericho, according to some historical sources. And so the idea was, this was a great place to get robbed. Okay? So Jesus is telling, if I said, hey, my car broke down on the 405, I mean, you would all know, yeah, 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 we know exactly what that means and AAA and all that jazz. For, for this, hey, a man was walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he got robbed. Yep, yep, these are stories you would have heard. Now, notice what they do to the man. This is very, very important. They stripped him of his clothes. So you had no way to know from his clothing what ethnicity he was. They beat him, and they went away, leaving him, what's it say? Half dead. Now, the word here means literally between life and death. And the idea it captures is that you can't tell by looking at the person whether or not they're alive or dead. And this point becomes incredibly important in just a moment. So a man is traveling... From Jerusalem down to Jericho, 17-mile journey, he gets robbed, they beat him, they leave him naked. So you can't tell, there's no distinguishing marks to tell who this person is, where he belongs to, and is unconscious. So not talking, you can't tell by looking at the person whether or not they're alive and dead. Verse 31, a priest, a Jewish priest from the temple, happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite... When he came to the place and saw the man, passed by on the other side. Now stop it here. The standard teaching on this is that the priest and the Levite were too busy doing religious things. That's why they passed the guy bleeding and bloody on the side of the road. Moral of the story, don't be busy doing religious things. This is not even close to what Jesus is saying. This is not a story about good roadside service. Okay, Jesus is doing something far more profound than that. I want to suggest that the priest and the Levite have a very good law-abiding reason to pass by. Keep your finger here. Go back to Leviticus. Go to chapter 21. Now, if you don't know about priests and Levites, let me just give you a bit of background. 
Levites were descendants of Aaron, who was the first high priest over Israel. Levites were entrusted with the operation of the sacrifices of the temple and the administration of the temple. The highest level of Levites were priests. Priests were the ones that literally offered the sacrifices and performed the rituals. And and there were so many of them by Jesus' day, you would take turns. So you would serve a week up in Jerusalem as a priest or a Levite, and then you'd go back home. So when he says a priest and then a Levite were going down from Jerusalem, the idea is they've served their time and they're now coming back to their homes in Jericho. I mean, that's implied here. It's not said. But I think that would have been the cultural filter through which you would have heard some of this. So a priest and a Levite walk by the guy that's been beating, and we normally think, well, they're just bad people. No, Jesus' point is that these people value the command to be holy over the command to love your neighbor. Because remember, what's the debate about? How do you rank them? Love neighbor, be holy. Jesus is going to start with two people that choose holy. Notice Leviticus 21. Bless you, my sister. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, speak to thee, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, a priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean. Now that meant if you were unclean, you could not serve in the temple. Do not make himself unclean for any of his people who die, except for a close relative, like his mother, father, son, daughter, brother, unmarried sister. For, for them he may make himself unclean. He must not make himself unclean for people related to him by marriage, however, and so defile himself. Jump down to verse 11. He, the priest, must not enter a place where there is a dead body. So, could you come into contact with a dead body? Yes. But here is then how you would get clean from that defilement. Okay? In Numbers, tw- uh, 19, 22, something, Numbers, one of those numbers, in the book of Numbers, the, the command was, if you were a priest and you got defiled from coming into, a, coming into contact with a dead body, you would have to go to Jerusalem, present yourself. You'd have to, for a week, you'd have to undergo ceremonial bathings. You'd have to buy a red heifer. We all know what those are. And reduce that red heifer to ashes over the course of a week. A very kind of inconvenient proposition. But I want you to understand, the priest and the Levite were operating under the assumption it was against the law to touch the dead body. And there were some who taught in later rabbinical writings that even if your shadow came over a dead body, you would be contaminated because the contamination from a corpse was vertical in nature. So if you even got close enough, you would be contaminated. Now, I don't know if if that's what they were thinking, but I want to suggest that contrary to their religious busyness, they were actually very religiously observant. They couldn't tell if the body was dead or alive, and so they walked past. Now, may I also suggest a, a, a financial reason for them to walk by, Namely, if they were indeed coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and if indeed they'd spent the past week in the temple, they would be carrying with them 
offerings that they would eat in their homes with their families. When you, as just a regular Israelite, would give a tenth of your produce in the temple, a tenth of that tenth would go to the Levites and the priests. So I'm trucking down with a donkey, and on it I've got offerings that people have given at the temple, and according to Leviticus 22, I have to be ceremonially clean to eat them. So do you see the dilemma? If I come into contact with this dead body, I've got to go spend a week back up in Jerusalem. And who knows if their family needed the food? I mean, who knows? My point is that contrary to being busy, these guys were embodying the command to not be defiled. In other words, they were embodying the command to be holy, correct? Are you seeing this? Yeah, okay. Yeah, fascinating. Go to Luke. Jesus, take the wheel. Now, Luke, there were three kinds of people. Three kinds of people that worked at the temple. Priest, Levite, Israelite men, Israelite laymen. Okay? Not the religious professional. They would do the most menial tasks. Often what Jesus will do is he will involve three people. First two will fail, the last one will get it. And so the natural expected punchline of this parable, priest walks by, Levite walks by, of course Jesus is going to have the common Jewish layperson as the hero of the story. Of course he is. But instead, verse 33, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him, went to him, and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he brought the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two days' wages and gave it to the innkeeper, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any good expense that you may have. We call this parable the parable of the Good Samaritan. Please understand, good and Samaritan never went together in the first century. If I were preaching at a a gathering of the NAACP's African American National Leadership, and I told the story about the good Ku Klux Klan men, how would that go over? If I were preaching at an Egyptian church today and told a story about the good ISIS terrorists, how would that go over? Right? I mean, if I were preaching to Holocaust survivors, and I said, let me tell you a story about the good SS officer. Good Samaritan would have felt like that. The Jews, for the most part, hated the Samaritans. There were a bunch of reasons for this. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, after King David, the unified tribe of Israel split into two. Ten tribes were called Israel in the northern part of the country. Two tribes, two and a half tribes, were called Judah in the southern part of the country. These, up here, the northern kingdom of Israel, they get exiled in 722 by the Assyrians. And they disappear into the nations. They leave some of the crumbs of Israelite society behind. And they import people from other conquered nations that soon intermarry with the Jews that were left behind there. Thus, the Samaritans are born. Judah, they get exiled 100 plus years later. Some of them come back with the primary concern to not go into exile again. The people that they do not like are the half-breeds, 
that have intermarried up to the north. While they've been intermarrying, these people have taught that there's a different mountain than Jerusalem there to offer sacrifices on, a different temple. And, and this is the kicker. Samaritans taught that teachers of the law were going to be most harshly judged in the age to come because they were leading Israelite society astray. Who is the man that initially asked Jesus the question? Remember? A teacher of the law. There isn't another person a teacher of the law would have despised more than a Samaritan. Let me just reference a couple of extra-biblical writings about Samaritans just to highlight this. So this was 200 years before the birth of Jesus. There are two nations that my soul detests. The third is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir, the Philistines, and the stupid people living at Shechem, which was the Samaritan capital. Okay? In a collection of oral tradition, we have the Samaritans were classified with Philistines and Edomites. We're not positive references. The Mishnah declares, He that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like to one that eats the flesh of pigs. So, if you're Jewish, eating pig is like the most defiling food you can imagine. So to share bread with a Samaritan is just like that. Which makes it all the more crazy that Jesus, when he comes across a Samaritan woman, asks her to get him a drink. And she says, what are you asking me for a drink for? Samaritans and Jews don't associate. Remember that in John chapter 4? I mean, this is what's behind all this. One historian says the Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogues. All right, so we're going to have church today. And we're going to do some public cursing. All right? Now, as an Ohio State fan, I say we start with Michigan. So let's just publicly curse... That they intermarried with Canadians. And and notice, a petition was daily offered praying to God that the Samaritans might not be partakers in the life to come. All right? So how popular... No, we don't want to disconnect. Josephus, at the time of Jesus, bitterness between Jews and Samaritans was intensified by the Samaritans having defiled the Jewish temple by scattering bones over it during Passover. So they took the body, the, the bones of someone who was dead, and scattered it over the Jewish temple on the eve of one of their holiest days. These guys hated each other. So when Jesus tells a story, and the Samaritan is the hero, if I told a story and the hero was a Taliban pedophile, Uh, No. 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 I mean, think of the grossest categories you have. That's what Jesus was doing. So the teacher in the law asks, hey, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells a story where the hero is the person the teacher of the law would have liked least. Now, is this a story about just being nice to people alongside of the road? Or is it a story about something much deeper And notice the Samaritan offers costly love, correct? It says he binds up his wounds, which was a phrase used of God in the Old Testament. It says he uses oil and wine, which were two things the priests and the Levites would have used in their offerings. And he puts him on his donkey and takes him to an inn. Now, suppose you're a Samaritan and you've got a half-dead somebody next to you and you pull into some Jewish village. How's that going to go over? So at great cost, the Samaritan shows love. 
Now Jesus, oh, Jesus, he's so smart. He then, after this kicker of a story, looks at the Torah scholar and says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, do you think was a neighbor? Not who is my neighbor, but who showed neighborliness to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. And notice, the Torah scholar can't even say Samaritan. Jesus gave him three easy hooks, priest, Levite, Samaritan. Instead, the Torah scholar says, the one who had mercy on him. Can't even say the name. And then Jesus, the kicker, the kicker! Go and do likewise. Go imitate your enemy. Now, do you see what he's done? Remember the conversation. Hey, Jesus, I'm going to test you. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's common debate. Well, you're the Torah scholar. How do you read it? Love God, love neighbor. Correct. He hasn't tested Jesus yet. So, who is my neighbor? Another very common Jewish debate. Well, dead guy, couldn't recognize whether or not he's dead. Priest and Levite walk by and they maintain their holiness. But a Samaritan is willing to defile himself to show neighborly love. Go and imitate him. So it turns out, loving your neighbor, your neighbor turns out to be the person you love least. That's how big neighbor love is. Because, listen, anybody can love people just like them. Correct? I mean, that's easy. You love those who love you. You love those who talk like you, believe like you, act like you, speak like you, dress like you. Done. That's nothing extraordinary in our world. We give Nobel Peace Prizes, however, to people who love their enemies. Right? No one's doing that. And so this isn't a story about being nice to people in need. This is a story about demonstrating neighbor love to the people you hate. Because last time I checked, I mean, Jesus was really clear about this other places, correct? Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, bless those who curse you. I would say this might be one of the least followed teachings of Jesus in the history of our planet. And so, the question becomes, if he were telling the parable to you, who would he use? Would he tell you the story of the good Democrat? The good Obama? The good Muslim? The good immigrant? The good homosexual? Who would he use with you? If he were telling this story and he wanted to poke a bit at the line you draw for neighbor love, where would he use? Who would he use for you? I mean, I know who he'd use for me, besides Michigan people. People who sneeze loudly, I would definitely include those people. <laughs> who do you use for you? Right? I mean, I, I can think of faces. And one of, the, one of the hardest parts of the Christian life is learning to pray blessing over the people that have hurt you. To literally... I will, I will take... Sometimes I'll get emails that are very upsetting to me and I will take them, I will put them in my Bible and I will pray for those people. And, and when I first start praying for them, 
All I got is, Lord, bless them. That's all I got. I don't even mean it. Right? But if you start doing that long enough, in full view of God's mercy, confessing your own sin and hard-heartedness, guess what begins to happen? You get to the point where you mean it, and at that point, you don't have to pray anymore. Because that venom has been taken away. I mean, there's a sense in which this is the most profound teaching for American church culture. We who are declared the authors of hate speech by our world, we who are so often caricatured as antagonistic and intolerant, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, but regardless, if you want to know what loving neighbor looks like, it looks like self-sacrificing love. End of story. So who's your neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? the person or persons that you would love least. Well, that paints a different picture. Which is the greater commandment? To be holy as I am holy, or to love your neighbor as yourself? Think of it this way. This is not true, nor... Well, this is a story I've told before, and it's dumb. And I often tell untrue stories, just so you know. Editing, so editing right now. I had a Brian Williams joke that I was just going to fire off. No. No, no, no. So, um, my, my little girl Hannah is nine. That is true. Suppose Disneyland sold magic wedding dresses that would grow with you as you got older. Suppose I bought her one of these dresses. And suppose it was beautifully white and it would grow with her as she got older. And that this would be the dress she would wear in 600 years when I permit her to marry. <laughs> and suppose the one rule about the dress was it was magic, but you couldn't clean it. If you got it dirty, you couldn't clean it. So the one rule was keep it clean, right? Suppose Hannah asked to wear it to school one day. Loving father, of course. Don't get it dirty turned out to be one of the two days a year that it rains. Hannah walks to school with an umbrella and a full body suit or whatever, and and she comes across a friend of hers who had uh, ridden her bicycle, gotten gotten into a bit of an accident, and fell into a big patch of mud and was laying there calling for help. Hannah is going to have two impulses. Impulse one, stay clean. Impulse two, get dirty to help my neighbor. Metaphorically, which one is Jesus going to recommend? He's going to recommend get dirty, right? There's a sense in which that's the same invitation. We follow a Jesus who was content with having a reputation as a drunk and a glutton in order to be seated and to eat with sinners. If we're more concerned about preserving appearances than the mission to love God and love neighbor... See, Jesus is opposed to Christianity whenever it's used as an excuse to hate people. He will war against that, and that is a false, false form of Christianity. What's love look like? I mean, I thought Jesus kind of demonstrated that, right? As he prays over people crucifying him. Forgive them, they know not what they're doing. So it's a pretty tall order for folks like us that you and I 
are to love God and love neighbor. Who's your neighbor? The person you love least. What's it mean to love them? It means self-sacrificial love. It means that if there's a choice between people perceiving you as religious or you getting a little dirty to be with those people, get dirty. It doesn't mean you participate in what they're doing. It doesn't mean... That, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if your reputation suffers because you're hanging out with the wrong people, you are in such good company. Because that's where Jesus does some of his best stuff. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is so unbelievably appropriate. The Lord's Supper, if you don't know, is for disciples of Jesus. It is where we take a bit of bread and we take a bit of juice. And we take them in remembrance of the body and the blood of Jesus of Nazareth, who died on the cross to forgive us, to renew us, to restore us. It's a reminder of what neighbor love costs. See, when we take the bread and the cup this morning, it's not just looking backward and saying, Jesus, thank you for rescuing me. It is that. But it's also a job description. That this is the Jesus we follow. And that there is no better way to show Jesus to the world than breaking our bodies and pouring ourselves out for the sake of the nation. So, what we're going to do is, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can let this go right by. Or if you want to become one, this is a great time to do it. But for those of us that are His, I want you to take some of the bread, take a bit of juice, and wait so that we can all take it together. Sound good? Close your eyes if you would. We're going to pray together. Father, we want to prepare our hearts this morning to receive afresh the good news embodied that you love the world so much that you sent your Son, that whoever believes, commits, and is faithful to Him shall not perish but have life. And so, Father, we again and afresh come to declare ourselves yours. We give ourselves to you. We realize it's grace that beckons us. And so we're grateful. But we also realize that the other side of that grace is grace that then calls us into the world to be ambassadors, to show neighbor love to people who are so hard to love. So we pray for grace, more grace. Holy Spirit, would you convict us, confront us, renew us, and fill us with power?